Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This podcast is presented by Facebook, who are collaborating with the UK government and charities to support the pandemic response and limit the spread of misinformation. History, said the first Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck, is simply a piece of paper covered with print. The main thing is to make history, not to write it. Bismarck would prove as good as his word, and for the 150 years since he first took power, German leaders have indeed been making history, for good and, of course, for ill. In fact, I was wondering idly as I researched this episode whether the politicians of any other European nation have had quite such a profound impact upon Britain over the last century and a half or so. From a newly formed powerhouse at the heart of Europe to the continent's militaristic provocateur, from war to defeat and to economic meltdown, to extremism and dictatorship and bloodthirsty terror state, to a second world war and a second defeat, to a bombed-out, divided nation, to communism and capitalism living side by side, from a Western economic miracle to reunification and the tearing down of walls, and then on to the beating heart of modern Europe, a nation of integration, union, peace and much more. Yet over recent decades, British interest in Germany, in German politics, German affairs, German elections, is not, perhaps, what it might have been. While millions of us will stay up through the night with hot dogs and popcorn to watch the race for the White House, when Germany goes to the polls this Sunday, for a truly historic general election, by the way, the reaction here in the UK will once again be a collective shrug. And this is big stuff that's happening. Angela Merkel is stepping down as Chancellor and, let's face it, de facto leader of Europe after nearly 16 years in power. For context, no British Prime Minister since Pitt the Younger in 1801 has served as long a term in office. And the race to succeed Merkel is on a knife edge, with each of the three main contenders having been touted as likely winners at different points this year and with any number of coalitions being mooted as possible outcomes. In Britain, we might be yawning, but in Germany, the nation is holding its breath. Germans are about as excited as they get about anything at the moment, because nobody really knows how this is going to pan out. This is Matt Karnichnig, Politico's chief Europe correspondent, who's based in Berlin. It is looking like the SPD candidate, the Social Democrat, Olaf Scholz, is going to win. But the polls are tightening as we head into this final weekend. So there is a lot of anticipation here, definitely. And that's pretty unusual for a German election, right? Like normally, kind of just the same thing always happens. That's right. And normally it doesn't really matter who wins for the most part because the parties are so similar. So much so that the Social Democrats and the Christian Democrats, which have been led by Angela Merkel, obviously, for the last 16 years. They've been in coalition for 12 of those 16 years. So if you imagine that the Conservatives and the Labour Party in the UK would enter a grand coalition, that's sort of what we've had here for much of the the past 20 years. But while the main German parties can look somewhat interchangeable to those of us watching from afar, the individuals who become German Chancellor can have an enormous impact upon all our lives. So as Germans head to the polling booths this Sunday, 
I thought it'd be fun to ask historians, journalists and former government officials for their reflections on German chancellors of the past and the present and why they've mattered so much to Britain. The story of Hitler's rise and fall is endlessly told and retold in this country, and rightly so, but there are so many more towering figures to discuss. From the political nous of Dominic Cummings' hero, Otto von Bismarck, as he built a powerful German nation piece by piece. He had this gift of swiftness, unpredictability, tactical cunning, ruthlessness. To the failure of Angela Merkel to make the concessions which might have kept Britain inside the EU. You know, I think a different chancellor should have done it differently. German chancellors have shaped our continent before our eyes, year after year, decade after decade. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking back at some of the great German leaders from Bismarck through to Merkel and at how they helped to mould the Europe and the Britain we know today. The year is 1815, and Napoleon is about to suffer his final crushing defeat at the hands of the combined British and Prussian armies at Waterloo. For a new generation of Prussians born that year, such as Otto von Bismarck, the triumph at Waterloo was instantly the stuff of childhood legend and an indication of how great the Prussian state could and must become in the new century that lay ahead. Bismarck was raised as old-school landed gentry and having idled away his youth in the traditional manner, he boasted his chief pastimes were smoking strong cigars and drinking his dinner guests under the table. He eventually found his calling in his thirties amid the plotting and intrigue of the 19th century political scene. Within a few short years, he was one of the king's most trusted advisers and diplomats and in 1862 was made Minister-President of the whole of Prussia when the monarch needed a new leader to break a deadlock with Parliament. He was initially viewed as a rather eccentric and ultra-conservative type who was mainly given to sort of provocative speeches and to unexpected outbursts. This is to Christopher Clark, Regis Professor of History at Cambridge University. But then he was brought in unexpectedly in the early 1860s to solve a constitutional crisis between the Crown and the Parliament in Prussia. And as Minister-President of Prussia, he showed such tactical skill, and it must be said also ruthlessness, in handling an obstreperous Parliament and then in triggering these two wars. Bismarck bullied the liberal-leaning Parliament into submission over his military spending plans. Next, he provoked short, effective wars with neighbouring Denmark and Austria to strengthen Prussian power and subtly build the case for an even grander ambition, a unified German nation. The march of history, he told shocked parliamentarians, would be forged not through voting or powerful speeches, but through iron and blood. With his six-foot-two stature, barrel chest and enormous blonde moustache, Bismarck cut an intimidating figure but the Iron Chancellor, as he quickly became known, was more than just a bully. He also had very particular skills. One was an ability to smell opportunities before anybody could sense that they were there. Another one was an understanding that 
situations of conflict could be more useful to a politician than situations of harmony. I mean, he had a gift for provoking and then exploiting the consequences of provocation and conflict. And finally, there was a sort of freedom from ideological constraints. He made deals with everybody that he thought would come in handy. He worked initially with the Liberals, then he dumped the Liberals and worked instead with the Conservatives. He was even willing to talk to the Socialists. So his career is punctured with the sighs and gasps of astonishment and indignation of, of his friends and his enemies who were always you know, being abandoned one week and readopted the next. And he had this gift of swiftness, unpredictability, tactical cunning, ruthlessness, and these things put together made him a very special kind of politician. So, a skilled and imaginative politician with no real ideology, who thrives on conflict, bullies Parliament, turns on former allies with glee, and enjoys provoking opponents until they make mistakes. Quite why he's idolised by Dominic Cummings is anyone's guess. Over in Britain, politicians were watching Bismarck's rise with some concern. The whole thrust of UK foreign policy was to maintain the existing balance of power in Europe, which had largely sustained peace since 1815. The spectre of an aggressive new powerhouse at the heart of the continent was not what London had envisaged. Things came to a head in 1870, when Bismarck cleverly provoked France into declaring war on Prussia an act he knew would bring the other German states to his aid. With all of Germany fighting together for the first time, the French army was routed in a few short weeks. A fully unified German nation was formed amid the victory celebrations, and with Bismarck, the master tactician, at its helm. For France, this was a, a profound disaster, and there's a wonderful literature about the, the deep effects on French culture of this devastating defeat, the transformation in the French attitude towards Germany. The French thought of them as a sort of nation of, of poets and rather unworldly types who were never going to get their act together. The centre of Europe had always been weak and fragmented, and that always suited the French. Now, suddenly, there was this neighbour of potentially colossal power. Here in Britain, Benjamin Disraeli then leader of the opposition, he spoke fearfully to MPs about the impact this new state would have on the fragile balance of power in Europe. Not a single principle in the management of our foreign affairs any longer exists, Disraeli told the House of Commons. The balance of power has been entirely destroyed, and the country which suffers most is England. But while Bismarck had the great European powers rattled, his primary aim for the newly unified Germany was in fact peace with its neighbours, at all costs. Well, his approach to that is to avoid conflict and to avoid a, a permanent weakening of Germany's position. He recognises the problems created by unification. He also recognises fairly early on that it's not going to be possible to reconcile France to the new entity. And he knows that the first thing the French will try and do is to leapfrog over Germany and establish a relationship with Russia. He sees that risk from the very beginning. And so the foundational axiom for Bismarck is never let the Russians drift into a situation of antagonism with Germany. Always keep them happy, work together with them, consult with them, keep them tied, as it were. Alongside a secret reinsurance treaty with Russia, which committed both sides to non-aggression, Bismarck also worked hard to ensure worried British leaders did not feel sufficiently threatened by the new German state to form a powerful alliance with France. 
I think the fact that he waged those wars against, you know, Denmark, Austria and France as a means of making politics, I think was a little bit frightening to many people at the time. This is the German historian Katja Hoyer. And so he sits there literally right from the beginning in 1871 and says Germany will be a continental power. We have absolutely no interest in building a navy, creating a colonial empire. And that's the main thing that's aimed at Britain to reassure them, basically, because he knows that there's apprehension there, you know, on the British side. But in 1888, a young new Prussian king, Wilhelm II, ascended the throne, bringing with him a very different vision of Germany's place in the world. The political system created by Bismarck had left ultimate power in the hands of the emperor, and the now ageing chancellor found himself repeatedly clashing with his new boss. Eventually, a furious Bismarck resigned, one day short of his 19th anniversary in the job. The problem when he leaves is that he's created such an intricate web of alliances with other countries within Europe that nobody else kind of knows what that actually looks like and what they need to do to to keep that going. So, for example, Austria and Russia keep drifting further and further apart in their interests, and it becomes increasingly unbridgeable that Germany can sort of sit there in the middle and, and have reasonable relations with both of them. And yet Bismarck just about manages to do that by making a secret reinsurance treaty with Russia, which Austria by no means must ever find out about. Indeed, such had been Bismarck's diplomatic skill in maintaining the balance of power that by 1890, his departure was triggering nervousness amongst those same British politicians who previously feared his rise. There's a sense of, oh dear, now the the sort of sensible captain is leaving, what's going to happen with this great big German ship and where's it going to sail and who's taking charge? So I think the first sense in Britain was that there was huge apprehension once Bismarck had left because he was sort of seen as a reasonable, if ruthless, but reasonable man that you could sort of talk to and he wouldn't kind of just go off on a a random path of of sort of an ideological nature. He would always do what's kind of, you know, objectively the sensible thing to do. The new German Chancellor, Leo von Caprivi, had been Bismarck's head of the Navy. He was no simple yes-man brought in to do the Emperor's bidding, but he did make one instant change to German foreign policy, which would have far-reaching consequences for the whole of Europe including Great Britain. He stands up to the Kaiser when he feels he needs to, but he does make a very serious mistake. Sir Christopher Clarke. And that is he allows the relationship with Russia to deteriorate. He doesn't do so by by means of any aggressive behaviour vis-à-vis Russia. He doesn't engineer a break, but he simply doesn't renew the so-called reinsurance treaty. And at that point, a really fatal development begins from the perspective of Berlin, namely the French recognising that the Russians are now free partners. They immediately renew their, their efforts to secure a relationship with St. Petersburg. And what results is the Franco-Russian alliance, an increasingly powerful and important presence in the European geopolitical system, and one which, given time, will make the Germans feel enclosed or encircled. And so began the build-up to the catastrophe of 1914, with France and Russia allied in one opposing bloc, and Germany and Austria sandwiched between them in another. This slow path to war continued as Caprivi was followed by a succession of German chancellors who all envisaged a more muscular role for Germany. Notorious among them is Bernhard von Bülow, Chancellor between 1900 and 1909, who as Foreign Minister had already given an eye-catchingly aggressive speech warning the great colonial powers that Germany, too, 
would now demand its place in the sun. Bülow gives us famous uh, Germany needs its place in the sun speech and will no longer hold back and why should we and look at Britain's and you know France's empires and Germany also needs that. Katja Hoyer. I mean, in fairness to Bülow, there is this thing amongst the entire middle and upper class circles in Germany about like almost social Darwinism, you know, applied to the context of nation states. And that's literally something that they just convince themselves of. If Germany doesn't get an empire, if it doesn't expand its markets, it will fall so far behind that it will eventually be extinguished from the European map. And given that Germany is the newest, youngest states, you know, in this sort of family of European states as well, there's genuine anxiety and perhaps a degree of insecurity about that as well. And that's kind of almost compensated by uh, naval build-up and, and colonial policy. What can you tell us about Bateman Holweg, who is Chancellor for the, the sort of the final five years leading into war? What kind of guy was he and how much was he uh, responsible for where Germany found itself in August 1914? He was very much, uh, again, sort of a typical, you know, administrator type person, which is why he was chosen. He didn't want to be Chancellor. He actually <laughs> broke into tears and said, why me? I don't want to do it. And then, you know, in typical Prussian fashion, kind of just clicked his heels and went, fine, this is my duty, so I'll, I'll have to. He wasn't, I don't think, the warmonger that people made him out to be. I mean, he did play a pretty problematic role with the blank check. So when that was sent to Austria, saying that basically Germany would give unconditional support in a military conflict and thereby basically Austria was half bullied, half coerced into its war, basically, in the Balkans. Bismarck, it's worth noting had warned near the end of his life that if there ever was another war in Europe, it would come out of, quote, some damned silly thing in the Balkans. Sure enough, the murder of an Austrian archduke in Sarajevo in 1914 would prove just such a trigger, and Bateman's firm commitments to Austria would drag Germany into the war. Too late, he realised his long-standing efforts to keep Germany's great naval rival, Britain, out of any such conflict had fallen upon deaf ears. The programme of naval construction, which is organised by Grand Admiral Tirpitz, supported by the Kaiser, creates a sort of burden on German relations with Britain, and Bateman strives to overcome that and to keep Britain on side. That's his chief objective. And so for him it's a tremendous shock when he realises how deeply the British are committed to their continental partners. The Entente with France is, is not a, a straightforward contractual commitment to France. It's a, a form of gentlemanly friendship. The Anglo-Russian convention is a convention, not an alliance. But nevertheless, as it becomes clear that the British commitment to this European combination is deepening, in 1912-13, Bettmann begins to panic. This is potentially a very difficult question to answer, but to what extent can that succession of men who led Germany be blamed for that conflict? Could a different set of chancellors that followed Bismarck led us to a very different world, do you think? Or was it impossible to really avoid these blocks forming and this inevitable conflict happening? I think it's difficult to see how the creation and then the consolidation of Germany at the heart of Europe after centuries of fragmented, weak European centres. It's difficult to see how the legacy of that emergent colossus could have been managed in a way which would have avoided any kind of conflict at all. I think we're also dealing with a sort of modulation in the quality of political masculinity, which is happening in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The Bismarckian model was a model of flexibility and cunning. It was quite foxy. 
like like Lord Salisbury, you know, work with these people, work with those people, you know, move, always bend rather than breaking, and so on. Whereas the people like Bateman were more about not yielding. It was about being hard. And they use this language all the time. We must be hard. And he said, we mustn't, if we make a concession on this question, that will be tantamount to castrating ourselves. So if Bismarck's legacy, from Britain's perspective, was to create a great new nation at the heart of Europe without triggering a disastrous continental war, the legacy of his less skilled successors was to fail where he had succeeded. And as a First World War stumbled catastrophically into a second, two decades later, the hardship and death suffered by tens of millions of people hardly need re-emphasising here. We know these stories well enough already. But the German story, of course, would take an almost miraculously positive turn after the horrors of war were behind us. In part two, we'll be looking at some of the great chancellors of the post-war period, from the father of modern Germany, Konrad Adenauer, to its present-day Muti, Angela Merkel. Stay with us. The pandemic has reinforced the importance of collaboration. Facebook has helped governments in more than 150 countries communicate public health messaging by providing more than £85 million in free advertising and training. The UK government and others around the world are using these free Facebook and Instagram ads to share authoritative, multilingual COVID-19 information. Get the full story at about.fb.com forward slash actions forward slash UK. It's strange now to think that a country as stable as Germany once worked its way through 15 different leaders in 15 disastrous years. But in the period after its calamitous First World War defeat, the nation really did lurch from one big crisis to another. Political stability, such as it was, finally arrived in 1933 in the merciless form of Adolf Hitler, who ruled Germany as Chancellor and Führer for 12 long years until his death by suicide in 1945. As I've already said, given we only have 45 minutes here, there doesn't seem a great deal of point exploring the impact that particular Chancellor had on Britain, writ large as the Second World War and the Holocaust are upon our collective memory. But it's worth noting that even the appointment of Hitler himself as German Chancellor did not make the waves in Britain you might have expected. There were no big debates in Parliament, no urgent Cabinet discussions, the British ambassador in Berlin noted only that constitutional procedure had been followed. The Times leader column the following morning even concluded it was desirable that Hitler should finally get the chance to show he was something more than an agitator, given his Nazi party had secured the biggest share of the vote at the last election. With one or two honourable exceptions, Winston Churchill chief among them, Britain yawned and shrugged its shoulders once again. Hindsight, of course is a wonderful thing. But instead of picking the bones over the rise and fall of Hitler for the zillionth time, I want to move on to the post-war period and the man who became the first Chancellor of what was now West Germany, Konrad Adenauer. So the first thing to say is nobody had any idea after the disaster of Nazism and defeat at the end of the Second World War what this West Germany would be. This is Timothy Garton Ash. Professor of European Studies at Oxford University. A friend of mine wrote the story of the beginnings of West German democracy in 1949, and the first sentence of his book was, 
in the beginning was Adenauer. Konrad Adenauer was a man who invented the Federal Republic. He was a Catholic, former mayor of Cologne, much involved in provincial politics in the Weimar Republic, but then kept his hands clean during the Third Reich, during the Nazi period. I mean, he wasn't an outright resistor, otherwise he'd have ended up in prison or with his head cut off. But he kept his hands clean. And then the Allies were looking for people to work with after the Second World War, particularly as the Cold War hotted up. And here was Konrad Adenauer. But Konrad Adenauer shaped the Christian Democratic Party and he essentially shaped the Federal Republic we know today as a democratic Germany that was very firmly part of the West. That was his key message, what in German is called Westbindung, being tied to the West. People of my generation, Germany has always been this very strong, stable country in the middle of Europe, very economically powerful. How much of that is down to him? The basis of its success, of course, is what's called the Wirtschaftswunder, the, the economic miracle, the amazing 30 years of economic growth up until the early 1970s. And I wouldn't say that Adenauer personally was the key architect of that. That was more a man called Ludwig Erhard, who invented what is called the social market economy. But it's important to remember, number one, that a lot of German business was still extant at the end of the Second World War, despite the cities being in ruins. And number two, it got a hell of a lot of help from its friends. Forgiveness of debts, the Marshall Plan, and those three elements, strong German businesses like, say, Volkswagen or Siemens, still being there, a good economic model and a lot of help from its friends created this economic miracle, which is the foundation of, of German success and power ever since. So while Adenauer was perhaps not the driving force behind Germany's extraordinary economic recovery, he became an urgently needed guiding figure for a country still reeling from the horrors of war and Nazi rule. You can imagine what an utterly confused, traumatised country Germany was in the late 1940s. And to give people a sense there could be another Germany, a better Germany that it would be democratic, in his view, Christian democratic, that at the heart of what it was trying to do would be Europe. We want a European Germany, not a German Europe, was the catchphrase. And crucially, part of the West, closely tied not just to Britain and France, but also to the United States. That's Adenauer's great legacy. Certainly for most people who who are in the mainstream of German politics. He is the founding father, quite simply. For Britain, the importance of a stable and unshakably allied West Germany at the heart of Europe could hardly be overstated after the horrors that had come before. And in addition to laying the foundations of the Germany we know today, Adenauer also helped lay the first building block of another institution key to Britain's future, the modern-day European Union. He signed the Treaty of Rome, which created the European Economic Community, which is still the core of today's European Union. Like many West Germans, he was a passionate European. And for Germany, he realised, too, that this was the only way back to rehabilitate yourself in the international community. 
Six years after Adenauer finally stepped down at the scarcely believable age of 87, Germany would elect its first social democrat chancellor, a former journalist who called himself Willy Brandt. Born Herbert Fram in 1913, Brandt had adopted his new name to avoid detection after fleeing the Nazi regime and hiding out in Norway and Sweden. He returned to Germany after the war and entered politics, becoming mayor of West Berlin. But as chancellor from 1969 to 74, his attention was fixed firmly upon the East. Brandt, although he was in office for a relatively short period, basically about five years, is as important a figure as Konrad Adenauer before him or Helmut Kohl after him. These are the big three. Why? Because he launched what is called the new Ostpolitik, the new Eastern policy, opening up relations not just with the Soviet Union, but with the communist-ruled states of Central and Eastern Europe, countries like Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia. And that is absolutely crucial to the whole story of Germany as we know it today, because without that Ostpolitik, which was a very bold, dramatic move, hugely criticised at the time by people on the right, precisely from Konrad Adenauer's party, hey, we're West Germany, we're not going to get into bed with the communists, was actually opened the door to the process that led to German unification in 1990. Was that a controversial thing for him to be doing at the time or was it widely supported by the public who had, after all, elected him? Massively controversial. Think Brexit, think Trump and then add some. I mean, it was hugely... He was accused of being a traitor, of being a communist, of being a spy. As I say, people on the right, particularly because of his policy, particularly of recognising East Germany as a state, which, remember, up to that point, West Germany had not done... And that opens up this process of kind of thaw and negotiation and engagement, which contributes so much to Mikhail Gorbachev, a Soviet leader, being prepared to accept German unification. That is unthinkable without Willy Brandt. The other point to make about Willy Brandt was, unusually for a German chancellor, he was a great speaker, an inspirational speaker. He really got the hearts beating faster and he made one of the great symbolic gestures of entire post-war European history when going to Warsaw, he spontaneously fell to his knees before the monument to the victims of the Warsaw Ghetto as a symbol of remorse and the hope of reconciliation. So he was as great a man in his way as Konrad Adenauer. And there's a certain irony in, you said at the, the start that he was initially accused of, uh, of being a spy by someone. In fact, it's a spying scandal that brings him down in the end. He had an East German spy, a Stasi spy, in his chancellery. By the way, I think communist ruled East Germany thoroughly regretted that later because what they got was a much harder line from his successor, Helmut Schmidt, who is a formidable figure, very popular in the English-speaking world, partly because, you know, he spoke perfect English. He was known in the Bundestag as Schmidt the Lip. But in a way, in the eyes of history, he too is just a transitional figure. Taking us on to the longest-serving of the ball, Helmut Kohl, who comes in 
without an election at all initially, which is unusual in Germany, I think. So when you say the longest serving, thus far, Helmut Kohl is the longest serving for 16 years and 27 days. However, if the coalition negotiations now in Berlin after this election go on as long as I expect them to, then on December 21st, just before Christmas, Merkel will have served longer than, than Helmut Kohl. Uh, Helmut Schmidt was deposed by what's called a constructive vote of no confidence. And Kohl comes to power at the height of the controversy around the deployment of NATO middle-range missiles, a very heated moment in what's called the Second Cold War. He, following Adenauer, and he's absolutely, you know, a disciple of Adenauer, sticks firm to his Western loyalty, implements the NATO resolution to deploy these missiles, and therefore builds up his credit with the United States, which he can use when it comes to negotiating German unification. Kohl was 52 years old when he came to power in 1982, a former businessman who'd led the CDU for almost a decade. He could scarcely have dreamed that within a few years of his ascent to the chancellorship, he would be guiding the reunification of East and West Germany after 40 years of Cold War separation. I asked Timothy Garten-Ash whether Kohl's influence had been pivotal or whether the collapse of the East German regime meant reunification was always bound to happen. So, first of all, it was anything but inevitable. What now looks inevitable was a miracle. I mean, the chances against everything lining up like that and it being achieved peacefully were just huge. There were all sorts of forces that played into that moment. There was Gorbachev's perestroika, there was Reagan's hardline policy from the United States. There were the opposition movements like Solidarność in Eastern Europe. There was even Margaret Thatcher who played some part in this. Kohl's great achievement was when the opportunity came in 1989-90, when the East German Revolution had happened and the Berlin Wall had been opened, which wasn't his work, to seize the opportunity of unification with both hands and absolutely push it through in negotiations with the Soviet Union and the United States, but also inside Germany, very, very fast, cost whatever you like, and as he himself said, get in the harvest before the rain starts. And, you know, if he hadn't done that, remember German unification was October 1990. August 1991, you have the putsch against Mikhail Gorbachev in Moscow. So if you'd had the other Helmut, Helmut Schmidt, and he'd been more cautious and taken it more slowly, they might never have got there. They might never have got a united Germany entirely in the West and as a member of NATO. So, so that is what earns Helmut Kohl his great honorific of being the Chancellor of German unity. Can we get a sense of how important these sorts of developments have been for Britain? What does it mean for Britain to have this big, strong, um, stable and unified ally in the middle of Europe as, as we see today? As you know, a lot of people in Britain were pretty reluctant to see Germany united, one of them being Margaret Thatcher. If we did not retain our national identities in Europe, 
the dominant people in Europe would be German. I was actually myself summoned with several other historians to the Chequers in March 1990 to talk to Margaret Thatcher about German unification. And uh, basically, we all tried to convince her that it was a good thing. And I've never forgotten at the very end of that meeting, she, she after about sort of five hours of argument, she sat up like a schoolgirl and said, all right, I've got the message. I'll be very nice to the Germans. <laughs> which they didn't much notice. Um, but so she was very reluctant about it. She thought there was going to be this really dominant country in the centre of Europe. Of course, it changed everything in Europe, not only because Germany got united, but also because then you brought in the East European countries. So the whole centre of gravity shifted. What for British politics was crucial was not so much the fact of German unification itself, but the price that Helmut Kohl paid for it, which was to agree to a timetable for European monetary union, right? That is what French President François Mitterrand demanded as a quid pro quo. As it happened, Kohl, as a great European, liked the idea anyway, but he committed to it immediately after the Berlin Wall came down. He pushed it through, and it's the European Union with the euro that, of course, created the Maastricht debate and really kick-started the development of Euroscepticism in Britain that eventually led to Brexit. So I think that's a connection, a, a, a slightly more indirect connection rather than, as it were, a direct worry about a big, strong Germany. Just as important in the story of Brexit, of course, would be Cole's protégé and successor but one as leader of the CDU, Angela Dorothy Merkel. Listen, Angela Merkel is in a way the most extraordinary figure of all these chances we've been talking about. Think about it. The wall comes down. She's a research scientist in East Germany, a divorced, mid-30s, no political experience. And 10 years later, she's leading the party of Konrad Adenauer. And 15 years later, she becomes the Chancellor of Germany. And today she is the commanding figure in European politics. I mean, just an amazing personal story. But her legacy, I think, will be a more mixed one because there is no big strategic achievement, right? There's no recreating Germany. There's no Eastern policy. There's no German unification. A legacy is, I kept the show on the road for going on 16 years, but here's a heap of problems that have accumulated. Politico's man in Berlin, Matt Karnitschnig, agrees. Everyone thinks that she's hugely important, historic figure, but nobody really knows why, because there's not sort of one you know, signature achievement you can point to, like with other great leaders. You know, if you, if you think about Helmut Kohl, you automatically think of German reunification, or if you think of Ronald Reagan, you think about the economic turnaround in the U.S., the end of the Cold War, and so forth. Merkel is less controversial, but she also has, you know, very little to show in terms of great achievements. I mean, most people would say, well, she's done a really good job of managing crises, you know, which is really more the role of a technocrat or an administrator than a real leader. Do you think she'll be remembered fondly? Are people sort of wistful about her departure? They're very wistful about it because they don't know what lies in store. And she has created at least this sense of stability and that 
everything is going to be okay. She's sort of shielded Germans from, you know, the outside world and, and all of the, the harsh realities of what's going on in places like the U.S. and China and so forth. So she's created this sort of bubble around them. And I think that people are worried about what's going to happen once once she's not there anymore, this kind of mother-like figure that they refer to as Muti, of course. How do you think she'll be remembered across Europe? It's, I mean, I'm obviously seeing things very much from a, a, a foreign standpoint, but it feels like she's been such a big figure on the European stage, really the whole time I've been a political journalist. What do you think her, her achievements are there, and how do you think she'll be remembered? I think she'll be remembered in the kind of EU Europe as somebody who really held things together in these times of of crisis, especially during the Euro crisis, where she played a a central role in kind of herding the cats and getting these bailouts together. There was a lot of criticism of her at the time. And, you know, obviously the Greeks weren't very happy with what she was doing. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, she does deserve credit for preventing the euro from imploding. So I think, you know, that and just overall through Brexit and the other crises, the refugee situation obviously was much more contentious. And yet I think her kind of ability to seek compromise, to bring people to the table is sort of the essence of you know, European unity, and, and she certainly was successful on that front. But for Britain, Merkel will be remembered for something else too. Her steadfast refusal to offer David Cameron the concessions on EU immigration, which might have helped him win the 2016 Brexit referendum. Angela Merkel on a one-day flying visit to London today warned she would disappoint anyone hoping she would either support or condemn the Prime Minister's EU reform agenda. Dominating the low-profile meeting was the influx of migrants into Europe, as well as the threat from ISIL and the UK's future in the European Union. For my final interview, I spoke to Daniel Korski, one of Cameron's chief Europe advisers in Downing Street about Merkel's role in ensuring Britain secured only a thin-looking renegotiation of its EU membership and with no compromise on the crucial issue of free movement. I think it's pretty fair to say that we thought she was the pivotal figure. I think history will probably tell us whether we were disastrously wrong or, in the end, probably right. But we knew that moving Germany was going to be absolutely critical. And so from the very beginning... There was a lot of emphasis on both building the relationship between David Cameron himself and Angela Merkel personally, but also an effort to play to Germany's strengths, their interests and so forth in what became the negotiation. And how did you find her as someone to negotiate with? Was she receptive to a bit of give and take and, and that kind of thing? I think that she was absolutely clear from the beginning. She wanted to do everything she thought was in her power to keep the UK inside the EU. But she was also very conscious of her power. She tries to see where the common ground is. She'll seek to nudge things at the right moment. She'll definitely intervene and try to get in. But she isn't somebody, you know, who used you know, big words or display braggadocio or or claim that she can deliver other countries. Uh, she's much more likely to be self-deprecating and, you know, a bit sceptical about how easy things are going to be. Do you feel like a very different German chancellor as the sort of de facto head of, of Europe 
with a very different attitude, a more flexible attitude, could have made things very different for you? I think Angela Merkel was basically caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, she wanted the UK to stay inside the EU and definitely saw that the departure of the UK would be detrimental to some of Germany's economic interests. At the same time, she saw in these four inverted commas inalienable rights that the EU has developed, of which freedom of movement is, is one of them. She saw in these, you know, the edifice upon which the modern EU is built, and she really didn't want to tamper too much with those. And so she was really sort of caught between two very uh, competing but equally strongly held priorities. And in the end, you know, she felt that she couldn't push the EU to compromise more on the freedom of movement. Would a different chancellor have done it? You know, I think a different chancellor should have done it differently. I think there was a golden opportunity to keep the UK inside the EU. And in fact, to transform the EU today. And we see that for those countries that remain inside the EU, the issue of freedom of movement hasn't gone away. It's obviously not escaped anybody's attention that Michel Barnier, having negotiated toughly with the UK, has thrown himself into French politics with a promise to reform the freedom of movement, which suggests that this is very much an issue that hasn't gone away. And the truth is, even if you know another German chancellor would have made a different calculation just to keep the UK in, I would argue that a different German chancellor might have made a different calculation just to make sure that the EU continue to be supported and sustainable. It's a counterfactual, of course, that we'll never be able to prove. What is absolutely certain, however, is that since 1871, German leaders have been helping to shape Britain's destiny in the most dramatic ways, be it through strategic alliances at the heart of Europe or disastrous wars which tore the continent apart. The role played by post-war nation-builders like Adenauer, Brandt and Kohl in recreating a powerful German state has had endless repercussions for us here in the UK, as have their crucial interventions in the construction of the modern-day European Union and ultimately on Britain's decision to leave. It's impossible to know how the next Chancellor of Germany might impact upon us here in the UK, but if the history books are anything to go by, it's probably worth keeping at least half an eye on Sunday's German election and on the character who emerges victorious at the end. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. And why not have a look back through our past episodes, covering everything from the history of pandemics to a little advice to our Prime Minister on how to charm a US President. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.